Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to the second episode of Killer Cases, a series that focuses on murder cases from rise to demise. The case today focuses on a killer commonly known as the Wichita Falls Body Snatcher, a killer who is relatively known from multiple episodes about him on multiple crime file shows. These episodes include Sip of Sins on Forensic Files and Killer in the County on Cold Case Files. He is known for his impulsive killings and cold cases that were eventually brought to trial. I would like to say for this one, there's a little bit of a disclaimer as it will have a little bit more mature material than the last one. Some stuff having to do with suicide and sexual assault. So that is the forewarning. But without further ado, let's get into Farian Wardrip's life. The Wichita Falls Body Snatcher. Farian Wardrip had a quiet life, and as far as any records show, a nice childhood in Salem, Indiana. He was born March 6, 1959, to George and Diana Wardrip. Growing up as the eldest sibling in a two-sibling household, there is no records of any abuse, physically or mentally, throughout his childhood. He did, however, drop out of high school in senior year to join the National Guard. He spent the next six years, from 1978 to 1984, in the National Guard without being deployed, before being released from the National Guard with a discharge under less than honorable conditions because of marijuana usage, multiple absences without leave, and disorderly conduct. While he was in the National Guard, he met and got married to his first wife, Joanna D. Jackson, in 1983. For the first year, he was able to hold a steady job as a janitor, and was later promoted to orderly. It was only after his alcohol and drug abuse increased, and he was discharged under less than honorable conditions, that he was unable to hold down a job. Now, a general discharge under less than honorable conditions is different from honorably discharged and dishonorably discharged. With honorably discharged, you get full benefits, including educational. But with discharge under less than honorable conditions, the person has the possibility of getting all the benefits, except education, but could also be determined to not be eligible for the benefits. However, with the general discharge, they will be able to get health care benefits for anything related to an injury from service, even if they are deemed not to qualify for VA benefits. But if you get dishonorable discharge, it's even more extreme, and in some states, it's held to an equivalent of a felony conviction, and you get no VA help, no matter what, even if you were injured in service. After his discharge, his alcohol and drug abuse increased, leading his wife to leave him and taking their two children with her in December 1985. By that point, her parents were financially taking care of all of them, from paying their rent to buying their groceries. It was six months later when we finally see just how much Wardrip had deteriorated due to this loss. May 6th, 1986 was the night Wardrip claims the life of Tina Elizabeth Kimbrew, a waitress he recently befriended. That night, Wardrip entered her house and suffocated her with a pillow. According to Wardrip, he did this because she reminded him of his estranged wife. 
The following morning, her body was found by her grandmother and her cousin. During the time between the murder and the family members finding the body, the neighbors claimed to have seen a male around six foot two, white and brown hair with a baseball cap leaving the apartment. Three days after the murder, Wardrip seems to have declined rapidly as he called 911 himself and admitted to the crime before saying, I just wanted to come here and see the ocean before I killed myself. According to Wardrip, he had spent two days prior walking the beach before purchasing a knife at Walmart. Though when the time came, he was unable to follow through with it, so he had decided to turn himself in. The trial for this murder was rather insignificant, without any complications. He pled guilty to the murder and was sentenced to 35 years in prison. During his time in prison, he reportedly reformed and found Christianity, as well as officially getting divorced from Joanna. It was 11 years later when he was released on parole in December 1997. When the time came close to where Kimbrew's parents realized that they couldn't prevent him from getting parole, they agreed to participate in an experimental victim-offender mediation dialogue program that would allow them to meet with Wardrip and ask questions on anything from the things about the murder to what he plans to do when he is released. Through this program, Wardrip and Tina's parents bonded during a five-hour session to an extent where the father is even quoted telling Wardrip, if, when, you get out of here and find yourself headed for trouble again and you have run out of other people to turn to for help, you call me. Throughout this talk, he repeatedly assured the parents that he had never committed a violent act before and he wouldn't have killed Tina if it wasn't for the drugs and alcohol in his system. He's later quoted saying he wanted to meet with them so that he could tell them how sorry I was and that I live every day in memory of Tina. She was my friend. After his release, he moved to Only, Texas and started a new life. Finally out on parole, he lived a quiet life, getting a job at a screen door factory. He eventually met and married his second wife as well as becoming a Sunday school teacher at the church he attended. Though while he was open in his new life about being a convicted felon, he consistently told lies as to the crime that put him away. He told some that it was vehicular manslaughter and an unavoidable accident, and told others that it was a bar brawl where his opponent fell and hit his head fatally. He lived this quiet life for 12 years, before police made the connection between him and his other crimes. Flashback to December 20th, 1984, when Wardrip was still working at the hospital and around the time he was discharged from the National Guard, when he commits his first murder. Victim number one, Terry Sims, age 21, a college student at Midwestern State University. Sims was working as an EKG specialist at Bethania Hospital. That night, her and her friend had ridden back from work together to a mutual friend's house to exchange Christmas gifts. They got off work at 11 p.m. and went to their friend's house. At around midnight, Sims' friend got an unexpected call and had to return to work leaving Sims at her house alone for the remainder of the evening. At some point during the night, Sims heard a commotion outside 
and went outside to investigate it. This commotion turned out to be Wardrip screaming at the sky. When Wardrip saw her, he chased her back to her apartment. While Sims was able to get her door locked in time, Wardrip was able to break down the door anyway. Once inside, Wardrip grabbed her and started physically and sexually assaulting her. And at roughly 6 foot 2 and 220 pounds, it wasn't hard for Wardrip to overpower Sims at 5394 pounds. However, as Sims continued to struggle throughout the attack, Wardrip tied together Sims' hands with an electric cord. By the end of it, she had been left in the bathroom bleeding to death from 11 stab wounds and probably died moments after the attack. Wardrip claims that there was no real reason he chose to attack Sims, and the only reason he was connected to this murder was leftover semen and a fingerprint left over on the victim that was matched to his 15 years later. Victim number two, Tony Jean Gibbs, age 23, a registered nurse at the same hospital where Wardrip worked. Disappeared January 19th, 1985. She was around the same size as Terry Sims, at 5'1", 94 pounds. At around 6 o'clock in the morning, Gibbs had come across Wardrip walking down the street when Gibbs offered to give him a ride. He accepted, but soon after entering the vehicle, he started hurling her around and screaming at her. He then forced her to drive down an isolated road to a field. Two days after the abduction, the car was found near the hospital, less than a mile away from Wardrip's home. Her body, on the other hand, wasn't found till February 15th, the day after her birthday, in the same field he forced her to drive to. Utility workers are the ones who found the body, and upon examination, it was determined that she had been sexually assaulted and stabbed eight times. Three times in her back, three times in her chest, one on her forearm, and a defensive type stab wound on her thumb. They found an abandoned bus near the body that had her clothes in it. Police believe that this is where the attack happened, and that after the attack she was able to crawl about 100 feet before she finally succumbed to her wounds. Four days after Gibbs' body was found, Wardrip quit his job at the hospital. Now, in this case, they originally had another suspect in her murder, a man named Danny Laughlin, who was arrested and tried for her murder. But because it was all circumstantial evidence, he was freed, and only one of the jurors actually believed that he was guilty. Victim number three, Deborah Taylor, age 25, a married woman. Deborah Taylor had been at the bar with her husband, Ken Taylor, the night of March 23rd, 1985. But Ken Taylor had gotten tired and went home early, leaving Deborah there alone. It was at this point, early morning of the 24th, that she was approached by Wardrobe and was asked to dance. Taylor accepted the offer, and the two continued to spend time together at the club. It was at that point, when things were winding down, that Wardrip offered to drive her home, and when they got to the car, he attempted to make sexual advances. She, in turn, rejected the advances, 
and this enraged wardrobe, and he attacked her, killed her, and left her body at a construction site. She was reported missing by her husband the following morning, when she failed to return. This is another case in which there was another suspect. In this case, the other suspect, of course, was her husband, and even though he passed the polygraph tests, and there was no evidence against him, the police still had him as the main suspect and his family and Deborah's family turned against him following the accusations. Victim number four, Ellen Blau, age 21, a waitress and student at Midwestern State University. Ellen Blau had been heading to her car the night of September 20th, 1985, from her evening shift as a waitress when Wardrop abducted her. He then proceeded to force her to drive to a secluded area, where he killed her. According to Wardrip, he says he broke her neck, but according to the police reports, he strangled her. Wardrip doesn't remember if he sexually assaulted her or not, but he does confirm that he's the one who killed her. He then proceeded to drive her car back to Wichita County. When the police discovered her car, they also found traces of her blood in the vehicle, along with her purse. It was October 10th, 1985, when road crew employees found her body in the middle of a field. By the time her body was found, it was in such an extreme case of decomposition that she could only be identified by dental records, and the cause of death could only be identified as homicidal in nature. They believed she could have been sexually assaulted, as her underwear was pulled down, but they did not find any semen around her that would suggest that she was raped. He was arrested in 1999 in connection with Sims' murder. This happened because originally a detective named John Little made a connection from DNA from the Sims and Gibbs case being from the same person. He had also found out that Wardrip had already admitted to his connection with Blau and that they all lived within a certain proximity of each other. On top of that, Gibbs and Blau worked at the same hospital. It was then that Wardrip, a man already convicted of a similar murder, worked at the same hospital. That is when he decided to get a DNA sample. He did this by waiting outside Wardrip's workplace, till he took a coffee break outside, and then retrieved his cup from the trash. When the DNA came up as a match, Wardrip was arrested in connection with the three murders. It was only after the arrest that he confessed to the fourth murder of Deborah Taylor as well. It was 1999 when he was sentenced to death as a result of the trial for the murder of Sims. He then received life sentences for the other three murders. Since then, he has made several appeals claiming that his defense lawyer was incompetent for that case, as his whole argument was that he wouldn't be a danger to prison society if he was given life because of his behavior during the first 11 years in prison. His appeal has gone back and forth, as originally he was denied the opportunity to present his appeal in court, while the second time he was allowed. On June 14, 2011, the court made the decision that he should either get resentenced or give him life in prison for that crime. The appeal was later sent back to the U.S. District Court for a reconsideration before 2014 when the court dismissed the appeal for inadequate representation and placed him back on death row. 
His death sentence date has not yet been set as of this point, but he is set to die by lethal injection. So that's it. There's the Wichita Falls Body Snatcher. Thank you for listening. See you next time.